Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Renee S. was recorded on February 3rd, 2022. Hi, everyone. I'm Renee, and I'm an adult child of an alcoholic and dysfunction. Um, I'm very nervous, actually, oddly enough. But And Dottie, thank you for asking me to do this. Um, and like that, it's so funny. I... I um, when I realized that you could go as long as 45 minutes, I either said, part of me was like, this is fantastic. But then another part of me was like, this is crazy. <clears throat> so anyway, um, <clears throat> maybe it's just fantastically crazy. I don't know. Um, so I guess I, uh, similar to what was said, I'm going to do sort of like what it was like. And I also have a, a timer to myself just for my own thing. I might end obviously earlier than, but um what it was like and then sort of what happened and kind of what brought me to these rooms and then where I am now and that's sort of changing in a good way, I think. But it, so, um, so what it was like, I, I grew up, um, it was sort of weird. I mean, my family in one sense was fairly healthy. Um, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on, but, Part of part of it was the sort of social forces, and so we grew up. Uh, my my parents are what are called braceros, which means we grew up working out in the fields. And I worked out in the fields till I was about um, maybe in junior high or so. Um, and it's just kind of a, a a grim life, you know. You're really not sure if you're going to be eating that day. Um, work is sporadic, etc. There's a lot of sexual abuse on the part of usually the, the, the owners to the women um, and uh, and all kinds. I mean, it was just a really, it was not good. Let's just say that. Um, um, my parents were, were, my dad drank, but he, it was very interesting. His whole pattern of drinking was like once a month, he would maybe get a case of beer and go into his room. Well, when I was born, we had one big room it was all like an adobe hut in El Paso, Texas. So there was no windows. It was two doors, dirt floor. And so he'd kind of go to, into his corner and just drink. And we were not, you know, we just knew not to mess around and talk, you know. And um, and that was it. Like, that's how he did it. Once a month, he would just sort of check out. Um, and we knew that that he was not to be bothered in a way. Um, and... Yeah, so it was like I said, there was a lot of memories that I have around that time. I want to, and by the way, when I talk because of, um, I, I know some people, I think Dottie, I know, so I read a lot. And the problem in, in one sense is it's hard for me to say, well, this is program approved, this is not. So I apologize. It is my story. So if I'll try to cite sources because I, uh, I have a PhD and I'm a nerd and I want to cite sources, but um, there's a guy that I read a lot. His name's James Hollis. He's a, a union analyst. And he says that the two characteristics of a of being a child that are true for all children, one is abandonment, because 
you know, no matter, even if the best of parents, they're never going to be able to be with you 100,000% of the time. And the other is the overwhelmment. Because he said, you know, if you feel like when you're a little kid that life's overwhelming, it's because it's overwhelming. <laughs> Life is bigger than you. You will die without the use of, without caretakers. Um, so when you feel like, man, I thought I was going to die, you were right, actually. That's really sharp analysis for a little four-year-old or a six-year-old. <laughs> it's scary, but it's, it's accurate. Um, and I lived with that fear forever, uh, of abandonment and of, and of just life is too big. Um, like I said, one of the luxuries of, of, um, the longer time. So I, I recently had my, I, I got COVID, um, and previous to that, I've had uh, some health scares and I was telling this at a meeting recently. And that is, I have a very, when I get sick at all, I get really freaked out emotionally. And one of the reasons is because, I mean, there's a, a number of reasons, obviously, but one is because I have very vivid memories of um, when we were working out in the field one time, and it's basically families that work out in the field. Um, when we worked out in the field one time, this man, this older older man, I mean, I'm old, he's probably his age now, but he fell and he started to kind of have a seizure and he frothing at the mouth. And I now realize that it was probably heat stroke I've since seen a, I, I coached cross country at high schools I taught at and could very well have been that. But anyway, what he wasn't in our family. Like, you know, and so we were just told to move on, like keep going. And his family sort of took care of him and stuff. But you know, it was it was freaky to all of a sudden see someone having a seizure and then just say, okay, you gotta keep going. You can't stop. And and there was this message that I got uh, that if you're sick, Nobody's going to take care of you. You will be left behind, period. Um, and it's sort of like I saw that. So it's sort of like nobody can tell me different. Um, um, so I just, you know, like I said, there were these definitely deep feelings of abandonment and life being too hard. I want to just go into some detail real quickly on uh, some childhood stuff. And only just because it sort of resurfaces in other ways. So when I was, we moved from El Paso to Tucson and in Tucson, my dad had a heart attack and they gave him medication. And now again, we, I, it's, it's different, right? I, I, I'm an adult. I can look at those things in such a different way. They, they were doing, clin, you know, these were clinics out in the field. Nobody cared about us. No offense, but nobody cared about us. We were just poor migrants. And um, there, there was actually a lawsuit, I guess, against some of the medication that was given to the farm workers at the time. And one was a, you know, they, none of them were tested. So my dad took a heart medicine. He had a really violent reaction and, and literally became violent. Uh, he beat up my mom and it was real aberrant behavior. It was weird. Like he'd never done that. You know, it was just very, it was weird. It was just, it was freaky. All of us were like, what in the hell is happening? Um, he, again, they were ignorant. They were intelligent, but they were ignorant about, so they heard that in America, if you beat up your wife, you go to jail. They didn't want him to go to jail, so he left for Mexico. And my mom was already working, had to work more hours. So we were left with nothing, uh, no one to take care of us. And I still have a very vivid memory of my mom being in makeup, getting ready to go to work and me saying, who's gonna take care of me? And to this day, I still don't remember her answer. Um, that year, I was six years old. I was being sexually abused by a teacher. Um, and that was to repeat again when I was 12. I was um, I was constantly injuring myself, and I now realize that it was probably a, a cry for help of some kind. 
I had hysterical paralysis. So I was, um, my arm froze and, um, and I had to go to the hospital. And, um, and there, there was a little African-American kid, this again in the poor areas. Um, and he was a burn victim, a stove had blown up in front of him. And I now know, again, this is common, but they have to scrape the burn off of you. Well, the problem is they did it in the same room that I was in with him. They just covered it up with a little curtain. So he would scream at the top of his lungs for an hour, stop, please stop. And, and I was just listening to it. And I didn't know what was going on. Um, and, and again, it's sort of like, it all felt overwhelming because it was overwhelming. Um, you can't figure that out at that age. You just can't. There's too much, pardon the language, but shit going on that's outside of our realm of, of cognitive capacity. So um, that was later to happen again when I was 12. Uh, real quickly, somewhat similar. My dad had a heart attack. He thought he was going to die. He, meant, he took my mom and my two younger brothers to Mexico. We were living in California at the time, Santa Rosa, which is about an hour from where I live now, an hour and 20 minutes. And uh, anyway, he, um, they were supposed to be gone two or three weeks. They were gone three months. My oldest brother was in charge of us and he was in high school and he was an active alcoholic at the time. I'm in recovery myself now. So I know what we can do when we're drunk. And we heard a lot of people we love. Um, so he drank away all the rent money and everything that my mom brought, sent to us. And um, so there were lots of times when there was no food, no electricity, no nothing. And I would be digging around in garbage cans when I was 12. And, um, and, and again, there was a teacher there that was also abusing me sexually in other ways. Uh, we had just been regentrified, So I went into a primarily white upper middle class school. So I was being called a bunch of names. There was only four people of color at that school. And I was one of them. Um, so it was just a horrible experience. Um, and I, I mean, I just had a lot of trauma. That's basically what I just said. And what, I, what I've come to realize is that it really doesn't, like the content of the trauma isn't important as, what, what for me is important is how one feels, you know, in the sense of what might be, because when I talk to my family about it, one, 90% of them don't want to talk about any of it, which is why I love coming to these meetings. Because in my family, I totally were done totally dysfunctional, but we are a little bit. Um, we definitely have the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust rule. And when I bring this stuff up, it's like, shut the hell up. You're, you're bad-mouthing our family, all this weird stuff, you know, and it's sort of like, it was just my experience, man, you know? And I love my family, and I'm okay with where we are. Like, we, we did our best. I'm, I don't have any, like the book says, we don't really, it's a blameless inventory. Um, so, um but, but what ended up happening for me, I guess, is that the way I handled it was a lot of ways. One is that I became kind of an overachiever. Um, I, I got really into books. I still am into books. I have a PhD. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to parlay that into some, some kind of edu educational stuff. Um, and, but, but all the while, and you hear this all the time, that there was sort of this sense of emptiness in me and a sense of, I don't know, not, I don't know, not being good enough, not, yeah, you know, and also like everything was going to fall apart all the time. I'd have panic attacks where they were very extreme where I couldn't, um, I couldn't function. Um, 
at one point, and, and this would surface periodically. At one point in my life, I was, I couldn't drive across the Bay Bridge, the Richmond San Rafael Bridge. I couldn't drive anywhere really. And my family had to shuttle me. Uh, and this is what I mean. We, we're all trying to do our best, you know, okay. Um, I did therapy. I started therapy very young. Um, I was drinking a lot. Those were my two, I mean, drinking and pornography are my two sort of drugs of choice if you want to use that. There's a, there's a, again, I'm going to use Hollis. There's a coping mechanism for my anxiety. Um, there, there are, there are modes of sort of trying to rein in all this overwhelming energy uh, or abandonment here. Um, and, you know, like they say in AA, it worked till it didn't work, you know? Um, and so it sort of like stopped working. I mean, I was doing therapy, but I was drinking a hell of a lot. I was actually, uh, my PhD is in theology. And so I was doing all kinds of spiritual, I have degrees in religion and theological studies and history. So, but they all, it was like not enough. I don't know how to explain it other than, um, it's sort of like I was trying to solve my heart problems with my head. And uh, I remember I, I've said this before. There's a guy that really helped me. Uh, just incredible. He was, he was on PBS. His name was John Bradshaw. And he had a bunch of, uh, of, of um, shows on the family and the inner child and all that stuff. He exposed these ideas to many, many people, including me. And one of the jokes he tells in one of his presentations was, he's sort of like me, or I'm like him, I guess he's older, passed away now, but we're kind of intellectual and all that stuff. And he says, we're the kind of people that if when we die, there's two doors, one says heaven and one says lecture on heaven. We'll go to the lecture. You know, it, that's how we are. We just want to know about it. Um, and, and it's like, that's not, the work is the work. It's doing the steps. It's becoming vulnerable. It's reparenting. It's telling the truth. Um, so I was doing a lot of it. And again, I don't, I'm not, like I said, not mad at myself. I did the best I could at any stage in my life. I'm 60 years old. And one of the blessings is um, um, that you kind of go, well, you did the best you could you know, at any time. And just what the hell, you kind of let it go. Uh, realizing that there's diminishing returns in special physical things. Um, but but I was going to you know I, then then I got sober from alcohol when I was in my thirties and that in one sense what that did is it increased my pain level um, and I couldn't sort of dodge the bullets anymore. Um, the first year that I got sober, the first few months that I got sober, um, I remember that I was I, I had got a sponsor and uh, I I had trouble sleeping. When I was early in sobriety, and my sponsor, and and so my, I called my sponsor, and he was supposed to do that. Anymore. And he said, "Well, what's going on? What do you feel like? What's going on when you're sleeping, or when you're trying to get to sleep?" And I said, "I don't really know, you know." And, and he goes, "Well, why don't you pay attention to that, and then we'll go from there." And so then I realized what it was is that I was missing my mom, who had died about three or four years earlier. I was still drinking when she died. Um. And um, and um. And I said, I, I just, I'm really missing my mom a lot when I, when I close my eyes. And he goes, okay, well, that's it. That's why you can't sleep because you're, you're missing your mom. You know, you're grieving. It's this thing called grieving. Um, 
And um, and that's why I, mean. I like I didn't know what my feelings were in a way. You know, we talk about this sort of stuffing our feelings. That's what it all was about. Um, and I still remember. And of course, it's it's now a good story because it's been twenty five years that I've been sober. But um, he said I have bad news and really bad news. My sponsor and I go well. What's the bad news? And he goes well. The bad news is you can't drink. And I go, well, okay, now what's the really bad news? He goes, and pardon the language, but he goes, this is going to hurt a lot. You fucked it. You didn't feel your mom's death. And you're going to feel that now. And your mom died. That's real sad. And you're going to feel real sad. That, and that's it. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's going to hurt a lot. A lot. And I'm like, okay. So it didn't help me. I mean, it helped me a little bit, but, you know, I'm like, so, and so what I ended up having to do is I would rock myself to sleep. I'd go, Amma, 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 which means mom and Ben, um, until I'd fall asleep. Um, and I just kind of kept trying to get better, to come, become more who I was. Felt like I wanted to be in, needed to be in, whatever. Um, after a few years in, in AA, I, I heard about Al-Anon and I heard even about ACA. In my first meeting, I got sober in Berkeley, here in Berkeley, California, and I went to my first ACA meeting in Oakland. And um, and I remember when they read from the big book, at that time, that was the only literature. Mm. This is more into the what happened. So um, I remember thinking, man, someone followed me in my childhood and wrote stuff down about me. You know, they, they described my my inner reality of my childhood experience so well, I was like, the heck is this? You know, someone was spying on me or something. I don't know what's going on. Um, and and it just felt like, I mean, without sounding kind of corny, but it felt like coming home in the sense that there were people that you all are my tribe in a sense. You all are the people that I can relate to. In a way. Um, you know, we're, we're wounded, but we're, there's, a, there's a hopefulness in these wounds. It's very powerful and palpable, like you can feel it. Um, uh, and I remember that. I remember that. That was true even in AA, where I remember thinking, whatever these people have, I kind of want it a little bit. You know, in fact, my first, the, my first sponsor, the guy that told me about my mom dying, um, the reason I actually picked him as a sponsor was he had gone to the Giants game that day. He was sharing at a meeting that night, but he went to a Giants game that day. And he hadn't drank alcohol. And I remember going, how the hell do you go to a sporting event and not drink alcohol? That sort of blew my mind. Um, and now, of course, I've done it many times. <laughs> but that was a feeling like, man, what are, what's happening? Do these people seem to have a lot of pain, but then they're able to navigate it in a more graceful way than, you know. Um, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I was Buddhist for a long time or whatever. I mean, I still have deep love for that tradition. And they talk about skillful means, you know, but a way to do it um and so i i just started to go to ACA and that became part of my healing and my recovery and my my um yeah my journey um I, my experience with it has been that that especially early on i was much more hit or miss and and it was really because i wasn't ready to in a certain way confront certain things um, and what I had to learn is that that inner, that little Renee, and I have a bunch of them, teenage Renee and all that stuff. 
I let them guide me and they'll tell me where their comfort level is. And so early on, if they felt overwhelmed, I wouldn't go to meetings. And it sounds really weird to say that, but I was just like, no. But then I, it's almost like what, what they needed to hear was that I was not going to abandon them. It's like, no, you know. Um, so I made a commitment to my children or whatever you want to say, my inner children. One, I'm never going to lie to you. Um, and so that includes also confronting, especially as I'm 60 now, we're going to die. And sorry, that's it. I kept hoping that if I did enough therapy, I wouldn't die. We're all going to die. So that shit, shit is going to hit the fan. And, um, and no amount of self-awareness is going to change that. One day, it ain't happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? And my kid is able to, for the most part, go, thank you for being honest with me. You know? <laughs> and, and then he you know, usually throws me the bird or something. I don't know. But gets a little bit. Um, so I never lied to him you know, to all of any of them. And then the other thing is that I tell them, I'm going to, and it says it in the book, right? With gentleness, humor, and love, reparent you. And what I came to realize, and this is, I'm kind of jumping back and forth between what happened and where I am now. With my kids, what I've had to come to grips with is, when I say I'm going to reparent you, it doesn't mean it's just going to be me doing the job but rather I'm responsible for your parenting. So what that means is that if I need to get help, I will. I'll get you the help. Um, so I'm not doing it alone. Uh, I, I'm not doing it by myself, in other words. Um, um, and so th that was helpful because part of the fear of that little boy was I had to do it all by myself. And it was really important to tell them, you actually don't. You don't. And even I don't have to do it by myself. I'll show you. <laughs> um, and that was really helpful to really say, you don't have to do it alone. That's a silly ass lie that was told to you when you were a kid. And that that somehow made you strong, which I don't know. In some ways, yeah, I get it, but I don't, I don't see it too much in me. Um, and so, so I kept going to meetings. I, I, you know, in the course of that time, I got a, um, a Bachelor of Arts in, in uh, History and Religious Studies in Oakland. I got my master's at Notre Dame. I taught, I taught at several high schools. And then I went to Boston and got my doctorate there. All the while I was doing recovery work in, in AA and in ACA. Um, at some point in there, I got connected to realizing that I was using pornography as a numbing tool as well. Um, and even relationships, but even less so. I, I'm much more of, and this is the vernacular of that program, where I'm much more of a bit of an anorectic, which means just that I'm, I, I can isolate. Now, the really weird thing is that I'm an introvert by nature. I actually really love being alone. And re to me, reading in a coffee shop by myself is as close to heaven as I'm going to get around here. Um, but I joke with people and say that I'm, a, I'm an introvert with abandonment issues, which causes some problems, you know, so. Um, um, but, but, um, and, and, and so in, in, I'm trying to think, in, in Portland, where I was a, a professor there, uh, in Boston, I worked through the 12 steps and, and of, of uh, ACA. And um, what, what it really did for me more than anything is it's almost like cleaning the pipes or whatever, you know, that 
yeah, it's cleaning your pipes in the sense that stuff is still going to have to go through, but it, it's not as it's not as overwhelming. You know, I talked about it at the beginning about overwhelming. Part of why it was overwhelming was that I hadn't processed large chunks of grief. So, for instance, if when I broke up with this woman named Amy, it, it missing her was laid on top of missing my mom, missing my dad, missing, you know, I mean, it, everything, it was all there. And so it felt really large. It was like a big ball, like crushing me. And what I did with the steps was I kind of whittled away at it. Now, the, the truth is that life has loss in it for me. Um, and so it's the way it is. A life has sadness. It has joy. Um, so, but, but it's not, it, it feels like it's less from the past and now more closer to the present. Again, it still acts up. It, I get triggered everything, but it's a little less. Um, like I, I can talk about missing my mom it, it, during Christmas. It's sort of funny. I'm really bad still about not that, but just awkward about my feelings. Um, I, 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 I was missing my mom and dad, but I didn't know that that's what I was feeling. And then I drove around, which I sometimes do just drive around. And that's how I think about like my life. And I called my sister and my sister's really good about, um, she's done some al and stuff and she's really good about just listening to me and, and we, we can share each other stuff. And I just said, at least I think I'm missing my mom and dad. You know? And they're both there and it's Christmas. And she goes, oh yeah, that, that I do that all the time. And I don't like to cry. It makes me feel like I'm going to lose control and I'll never stop. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. But it's still just a bruiser for me. It's just rough, rough around the edges. So what I usually do now is I'll call someone and say, I'm going to cry for an hour and I'll check in because I feel like if I have some half-assed kind of container, I can work with it. Um, so my sister goes, oh, yeah, no, I, I cry all the time about my parents. You know, <laughs> our mom and dad did. And uh, she, she joking, she, she said, I remember recently she, her and her husband were at a, like a whole food or something, so, you know, super, she got a lemon. And she said, I was thinking about this lemon. I got, I, we were going to buy a lemon. And my tia, which means my aunt, her and my, my sister and my aunt would go to Reno and, and, and play the penny slots, which I still do to myself. But, and she said, and we'd order margaritas with the lemon. And she said, I was holding this lemon and I started to think about my tia too. And I burst into tears and I cried for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then I finished my shopping. You know, and to me, that was like magic. It was like a, like she could have been Superman. Like I time traveled. You know, I just was like, how the hell do you cry? And then just kind of, just kind of go on. You know, like it's sort of weird to me. But she's like, no, it's cleansing. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I read all the books. Leave me alone. You know, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it, I, I did cry and it was helpful. Um, and like I said, it didn't feel overwhelming. I mean, it did in the sense that it was grief, but, it was a different level in a way. And I think that that's progress. Um, so I did the steps. And again, I, I just, it, it felt like cleaning out the pipes. The other thing that it did for me is, is it sort of allowed me to be kind to myself and nice. And so this is more where I am now. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll just talk about two things. One is the steps did one, uh, several things for me, but one of the things it did is it allowed me to do grief work. It allowed me to accept how horrible I felt. 
and it it was horrible. Um, yeah, it was very horrible. Um, and it is very sad in a way what happened to me. Um, and when I say that, like I said, it's it's telling that little Renee, it was a shit show, man. You know how you felt like hell? It was a shit show. <laughs> you know, maybe Al, my older brother. And again, I, I hope people are not offended by it. I'm going to tell you what happened to me. So sometimes it gets really rough. In our family, we grew up really rough. My brother would, I'm not, maybe I won't say the, the words, but he made fun of my masculinity by saying that if you cry, you're weak and all that. And yet when I think of these things that happened to me, it's like, you would be insane not to feel scared. You would be insane not to feel uh, freaked out or whatever. And and now I realize he was also covering his pain. He was uh, one of the active alcoholics in my family. Um, so when I say these things now about it being horrible, it's not to dredge up the past. It's to honor the resiliency of my little boy um, and to really honor like the you're a pretty kick-ass guy. You know, you're pretty cool. Um, and so it, it kind of allowed, the grief work allowed me to go back and and honor the just remarkable levels of pain and, and just, yeah, horrificness of it all. Um, and again, it isn't, the, it isn't the experiences, it's the feeling. So for you, you could say, well, I didn't have that. But it's if you felt like that, then honor that feeling, right? Because that's what I mean. I don't honor those events. I mean, I guess I, but I, I honor the feeling that I had. And it was scary. That's what it was. It was scary. Um, um, so that's one thing is this whole grief thing really throws me for, you know, I still do that. I still need to work on a lot more grief, I feel. Um, especially it's weird. As I get older, my body's sort of, you know, in the process of decay. And so it's sort of like you got to let go of things. Um, and it's, it's just difficult for me. And that's part of what grief is, I think. I'm glad that this program has taught me how to do some of that with a great, I mean, I, I, it's a remarkable how much it's helped me. Um, the reparenting, it's taught me by, you know, when, I remember hearing this in AA, but in AA they used to say, we'll love you until you learn to love yourself. Mm. So that's, that's kind of what happened here in a way. You guys, when I say stuff, you don't make fun of me. You don't call me names. You don't, you know, you say, well, that's why, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're really brave. You don't make fun of me. I, I know how it sounds weird, but I don't feel like I'm going to get beaten up emotionally or physically. And there's something really remarkable about that for me. Um, and I'm trying to do that with my kid, you know, with all of my children. And again, I said before, I have a lot. Um, I have to tell you this one story. I, I'm, I'm working with the, uh, still with a lot with the pornography and trying to just, you know, wean my way off of that or whatever, what, however that works. But so I was in Portland and I was going to an SLA meeting. Um, and and by the way, I, 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 this is how I think. So I hope nobody's offended by this. When I was in high school, I was really unpopular. I didn't couldn't get a girl for the life of me. And my older brother was super cool with girls and everything. And um, and it's always like saddened me and I'm you know, bummed out. And I'm like, oh, God, what a horrible. I was such a nerdy guy. And what the hell's wrong with you and me? You can't get a girl and all that. And um, and then I was driving and, and and I was driving. This was like five years ago or whatever. So I was, you know, uh, and I'm driving to this meeting and I'm playing a CD and uh, yeah, CD and uh, in my car. 
And it's a Tony Orlando and Dawn CD, which I don't know if you guys know, any of you know who that is, but they're great, great group. I mean, from the right. Thank you. God bless you. But <laughs> and but I used to listen to them in high school because my mom and dad listened to them. And and um, and I loved them. I mean, they were great. You know, Ty Urban, Ronald, Jolene, they had all these great, I mean, those fantastic songs, Freedom for the Stallions, fantastic stuff. And, but anyway, I was driving, and again, you may not, I mean, this is, this is my relationship to my kids. I'm driving, and I'm thinking, I'm talking to my adolescent, Renee, right? And I'm going, dude, no wonder you didn't get laid. You were listening to Tony Orlando and Don in fucking high school. You know, I mean, no chick is going to, you know, no girl. Hey, let's, let's go listen to Tony Orlando. There's, you know, like Led Zeppelin, this kind of stuff. Huh? No, let's do Tony Orlando and Don. What's wrong with you, dude? And... We had a great laugh. It was so remarkable. It was like, oh, God, I was a nerdy little guy. And it's cool. It, I was just fabulous. <laughs> I was just a fabulous little guy, man. Um, and that's great. Whatever, man. You know? And um, good. Good for you. <laughs> good for you. And I turned up for New Orleans and Don. Um, and it was just wonderful. Just like, what the hell, you know? Um, and I don't know. It, it, that's what I mean about there's that kind of those moments of clarity for me where I'm the playfulness, the, the beauty of, of reparenting and go now. Now we can laugh together, you know, um, and uh, I'm not I'm close. To, uh, I have about two minutes, but I'm not going to use them all. But is um, the last thing. And this is more like where I am a little bit now, but I'm moving in this direction. And what's really strange is I'm moving in the direction in part because I'm teaching the students this that I teach and I have for about the past maybe six years or something eight years. Um, my, my, like I said, my degree is in theology and it's about how do you love your neighbor and all this stuff. But I've recently come to realize that in scripture and certainly in the Christian and the Hebrew scriptures in the, in the Christian Testament and the Holy Quran, um, one of the, one of the languages that's used with God and again, higher power God for me is the language of delight, that that God or whatever, goddess, whatever, delights in, in, in God's creation, their creation. And I was thinking about what that means. And I remember this memory that happened. It wasn't, well, it was a memory. When I was teaching at the University of Portland, all, you know, we had our buildings and our little offices. And we were all doing our little intellectual work and all that stuff. And at one point, one of the professors brought their little child from home. And she had just had like a tooth removed from the dentist but she was like all you know she was like a little girl like really little you know I mean, not that little but you know what i mean very young little girl and she was just enthralling i mean you know and like she came and ah, and all of the professors including me of course we came out from our little offices and she was there in the center of the hallway and and she was asking questions and one of the one of the nuns the kathleen said oh you know I, i've had my tooth out and the little girl goes, oh, is it in your office? Maybe we can see it. And she goes, well, no, they actually, you know. And But we were all just rolling. And we were delighting in her presence. I remember thinking that we were so happy to see her. We were delighting in her presence. And my relationship now with my higher power, and I want, and I want my kids to feel this, my little kids inside of me to feel it. I want my students to feel it kind of I want everyone that I meet to feel it, is I'm just delighted. And I'm just so, 
And I and I the way I told it to my students is I said, here's what's really strange. I think, I think that I don't feel this, <laughs> but so I, I do sometimes, but not a lot. God, God, higher power, whatever. God wakes up every morning with me and goes, I get to spend the day with Renee. Ah, I'm so happy. Ah. He's just like he, she, whatever it is, just crazy ass happy. He, she, whatever it is, is crazy ass happy to spend the day with me. Just so out of that's how excited God is to be with me. Um, because I'm that damn cool. Um and 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 that I that's good. Like he's right, he she it is right. We were we were sold a I mean I was sold a bag of goods that said I was no good. The teacher that abused me, all both of them. My they, you know, the, the, the woman called me my mom of war and my dad shit. All of that's not true. Um I'm good. <laughs> I'm really good. Um and again I want to stress, I don't always feel this. It still is true. It's just I don't always feel it. Um, but this program has helped me begin to sort of join those things so that I can inhabit that world more, more often. Um, and so to me, that's the, 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 where I am right now in the journey is, is reparenting with, again, humor, gentleness, and love and respect and all that. Having fun talking to my kids and remembering our our times together, including nerdy times, and just going, oh, what the hell? We were good. We were good. Um, um, the grief work that is there um, and present, and honoring the pain that is part of a good life, a really good life. Yeah, I mean, if you don't, if you have a life of no pain, that's kind of sad to me a little bit. But um, and then the delight, the language of delight that in the in in the creator and the creation and all that. So those to me are where I am. And I, none of that would have been possible, I don't think. No, I don't even think. I know none of it would have been possible without the program, without people in these rooms, including you now. Because, um, of course, you're part of my recovery. And um, now. And so, yeah, that's sort of where I am, I guess. Thank you so much, all of you, really. Thank you for listening.